In this day and age dominated by social media, you may have heard of the term slacktivism. It's defined as the practice of supporting some cause by means such as social media or online petitions, characterized as involving very little effort or commitment. And so someone clicks a button or shares a link, maybe goes as far as changing the color overlay on their account's avatar, and thereby declare to the world that they are part of a movement, all without having to leave the house. It certainly makes the slacktivists feel good, usually, as they convince themselves that they're raising awareness, voicing important concerns to the world around them. Now, pundits and researchers argue over whether slacktivism or armchair activism, as it's sometimes called, has any beneficial results or not. However, some individuals and groups that actually work to solve problems in the world are starting to snap back against it. One volunteer-run Christian disaster relief group called Crisis Relief Singapore launched a campaign a few years ago called Liking Isn't Helping. And they used real photos of people that they worked with who have been impacted by flood or war or earthquakes uh, who are really suffering and really needed help. And they said the idea behind the campaign was simple. Virtual things don't count in real life. Even a billion likes on Facebook won't help those facing crisis in their everyday life. Instead of giving a thumbs up, the ads carried this tagline, be a volunteer, change a life. Now, as Christians, we are called out of the armchair of faith and into the real world to use actions and words as we serve as Christ's body. We're invited to busy ourselves with real efforts to lovingly fill every corner of the earth with the knowledge of God. This has been the function of the church right from the beginning. The book of Acts records for us the start of the story, and it's a story that we are still part of today. If you're a Christian uh, today, you are part of the church, uh, the global church, Christ's body on the earth, and the story that began in the book of Acts continues through you and through me and through all of us here. In verse 31 of chapter 9, Dr. Luke, our author, had given one of his many assessments of the church's health and activity. He likes to take the vitals of the church and add them to the chart every few chapters or so. And here's what he wrote back in verse 31. He said, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers." So the violent wave of persecution that we studied, uh, which was led by Saul of Tarsus, that had passed, that was gone. Now things were peaceful. The church was encouraged. It was being built up. It was increasing, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the region. And having made this assessment, Luke is going to spend the rest of the chapter giving us a few for instances. He says, here's what was going on at the church at that time, and here are some examples to highlight or to spotlight what the Lord was doing uh, in that time. These aren't the only things that were going on, but they were typical of the kind of work being done in and through God's people during this time. Our passage tonight will generally focus on Peter. He's a main character of the book after all. Every book has to have some sort of main characters or cast of characters, and he's one of them. But the book of Acts has made it very clear that it wasn't just one or two people who were accomplishing great things by God's power. 
almost every single Christian listed so far has been a great example to us. We're nine chapters in, and if you have been with us in, in those, or if you are familiar with the book of Acts and can think about the different characters that have listed, even if they're only listed in a passage or two, they're almost all really, really, really great examples to us of serving God, of God's power, of faith in action. There's really just two believers so far that are not a good example to us, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Everybody else is being dynamically used by God, changed by God, built up by God, uh, magnifying the Lord in their lives, serving in the church. And so there's a lot of people that God is working through, even though in general, the main characters are guys like Peter and later will be Paul. And so Acts has made it clear to us, not just Peter and Paul, but Stephen and Barnabas and Ananias who lived in Damascus and the other believers in that city, Philip and the other guys chosen to serve the widows. Tonight, we're not just going to see one spiritual superstar that everybody was rallying around, but multiple individuals who were used by God and whole communities of Christians who were full of the Spirit and making a difference where they lived by the power of Jesus Christ. We'll see different ministries, different gifts, and we'll be reminded that this kind of encouragement and building up that we see in verse 31 is still the plan for us today. As Dr. Luke showcases these examples to us, he keeps using a particular term, over and over and over again. For us, it's translated as get up or got up, or perhaps your translation says arise. He's going to see, we're going to see it five times in 12 verses. When that happens in the Bible, we should pause and think, is there a reason why this is happening? Uh, God has as full a vocabulary as he needs, and that includes the inspiration of the scripture. And so in such a small section, if this term keeps coming up again and again and again, uh, it, it's probably something that we want to at least investigate a little bit. This term used for get up or arise, it's used toward people receiving ministry and toward people doing the ministry. And though it was a common word, it's hard not to think that Luke was trying to get us thinking about getting up and getting going, getting about the Lord's business. When you read five times tonight, get up or arise, it's a term that means to awaken, to recover, to begin an action. It's the same word used when uh, we're told that Matthew got up and followed Jesus. When the Lord said to him at his tax booth, follow me, it says, okay, he got up, same word that you, Luke is using in this section, and he followed him. This word get up or arise, it's the same word Jesus used in the garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion when the disciples kept falling asleep and he kept coming to them and he said, get up and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. The Bible in general beseeches us as God's people to stay awake, to stand firm, to get up and be on the move. And tonight we see pointed examples of how the church was up and walking in remarkable ways. Verse 32, as Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. Uh, some commentators feel that this is when Peter was traveling home to Jerusalem after being in Samaria. We'll remember from a few, couple of like, passages ago, back in chapter 8, 
Philip the evangelist had been driven out by persecution. He was preaching the gospel in Samaria. Great revival broke out. And so Peter and John went and uh, ministered there. And then it said that they were ministering to the other villages as they came back to Jerusalem. Some think that that's what is happening here, that they're on their way back from that. Others think that it was a later time. Remember, the last passage covered over a decade of Saul's life, and so uh, there's a little bit of overlap or backtracking sometimes in the book of Acts. The truth is we're not sure exactly when this was, but what we do see is that while Peter did not seem to have some ultra-strategic plan of attack, after all, he's just going place to place. It feels very general what he's doing. He had made it a plan to minister. He was out there on purpose going to minister to people. That's what he set out to do. He sort of reminds me of a honeybee out looking to do his job. I doubt very much that the honeybees get into a meeting uh, on, you know, as soon as the sun rises up and he says, okay, you're going to go to the third flower from the left, right? They just leave the hive and they go out and they look for flowers and they do their honeybee stuff there, right? And, and so... You know, in some sense, it's good to make um, lots of plans and target things and, and make definitive, uh, you know, uh, ideas for what we, how we want to minister. But in, in, when we don't have those specific plans or we don't have that specific target in front of us, you know, we just want to make sure that we are going about the business in general, like a honeybee, Right. Uh, like Peter is here. He's just going from place to place. And he says, well, wherever I find myself, this village or that village, my plan is to minister. I don't exactly know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to entail place to place, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be led by God and I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. Now, sometimes we can make very definitive plans for ministry with specific targets and specific goals, things like short-term missions trips or specific initiatives in the church. Hey, on this Saturday, we're going to go and do X, Y, or Z. That's fine. But when that's not happening, go about your business flower to flower, as it were, with a plan to minister, to be about the Lord's business. That's not a job for just apostles. It's a job for all of us. As we've seen, this was the mindset of all the spirit-filled Christians in the book of Acts. They were, of course, ready for those surprise divine appointments when they came up. But in the meantime, whether it was Peter or John or Barnabas or Philip or any of these people, they behaved as workers ready to plant, ready to harvest, ready to be used place to place wherever they found themselves, even if they were on their own. We notice that Peter's on his own here. We know Peter has a wife from other passages uh, in the New Testament, and so maybe she's traveling with him. Luke doesn't specify, but he's just kind of on his own doing a little bit of traveling, and uh, wherever he's going, he's made it a plan, I'm going to minister in the power of Jesus Christ. We don't see him sending ahead and saying, hey, uh, plan a bunch of meetings for me, or I'm going to speak here on this night or here on this night. We don't really get that sense on this trip. Uh, but this is what he's doing, general ministry place to place. Verse 33, there Peter found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Now, it's not exactly clear whether this man was already a Christian or not. What we know is that he had been living through a long period of very significant suffering. And the way Luke writes it, Peter finds him. Uh, he wasn't brought to Peter, according to the wording here. Peter finds him. It comes across as if Peter took the initiative to reach out to this guy, that he saw him and he said, you know what, I'm going to go minister to that guy. And that's a great encouragement for us tonight. 
Each and every one of us can think of someone who we could reach out to in some way in ministry, right? Just try to think for about five seconds. Is there someone in my life I could minister to generally in some way? And all of us have a long list of people, no doubt, that could fill that you know, blank space. But we can all think of someone, identify them, and think, okay, I've found that person in my life, and how might I minister to them? Whether that's reaching out with compassion or with a presentation of the gospel, with some act of generosity, maybe prayer. We know there are all sorts of ways to demonstrate the love of God, and so we should be finding someone and asking the Lord to use us for his purposes in their lives. You know, maybe make it a habit of just thinking, okay, Lord, uh, bring someone to mind, or Lord, I've got this list of people that are in my life that you have put in my life, and so, Lord, I want to minister to one of them this week. I want to minister to one of them at some point in the future. There they are in front of me. Here I am, an ambassador for Jesus Christ, an agent of his grace. Lord, let's connect these two things together. Give me a way to minister to this person. Verse 34 says, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. Here we have the first two uses of that term, get up. Peter said, get up. So Aeneas got up. He was put on his feet, restored to strength, invigorated, made whole. Peter's message to him was simple and straightforward. Jesus Christ heals you. Our Savior is enough to address any problem in the body, in the mind, or the soul. There's no insufficiency in him. He is the ultimate solution to any problem individually or globally. Whatever we face, we face with Christ as our fortress and our refuge. Now, Peter said that Jesus had healed this man, and because of that, Aeneas had an immediate job to do. He said, Jesus Christ has done this for you, and so respond by getting up and doing something. Arise and make your bed, he said. Or some translate it, maybe your translation says, get ready to eat. And so scholars disagree on exactly what was said there. But either works on a devotional level. Arise and get ready to eat, or arise and make your bed. As we think about getting up and walking in the power of the Lord who transforms our lives, who brings us from death into life, uh, either one of those works on a devotional level. As we get up and walk with the Lord, we want to be sure that we are nourishing our spiritual lives, that we are feeding on the word of God, that we are being supplied by his living water, uh, that we are taking in those things that he has given uh, through his spirit and by his word and through the community of the church and all of that. And we want to remember to be faithful to get our lives in order. Now listen, this doesn't mean that everything we do all the time has to be perfect or just all just so, but the, 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 the Lord gives us power for living a regular life, right? Um, God doesn't say, okay, you're a Christian now and now you can't integrate with regular society. You have to go live in some weird mountaintop monastery for the rest of your life, just like chanting and you can't do anything for yourself. You can't keep your life together. On the flip side, you know, we don't want to be the kinds of people who are saying, hey, I want to preach to you about a God who loves you and has a plan for your life. Hey, what's going on in your life? Yeah, my life is a complete disaster, a complete disaster. I can't keep anything in my personal life together. I can't keep any of my relationships together. Everything's a complete wreck. I'm a hot mess all the time, but God has a plan for your life. Well, clearly there's a disconnect there. And so God 
calls us to stand up and to walk. And part of that is he says, yeah, I give you power for living your regular life. The New Testament talks a lot about the regular life, your life as a husband, your life as a wife, your life as a parent, your life as a worker or a coworker or a boss, an employee, a church member, a citizen. It talks a lot about this stuff, the regular parts of life and how God's power works in and through all of those aspects of your life to glorify the Lord and to bring fruit out of your life, right? And so nobody's saying, well, Christians have to have everything together all the time, a perfect life. I'm not saying that, and I hope you don't think I'm saying that. But if you turn around and you say, God has a plan for your life, what's God's plan for your life? I can't, I can't do anything. I can't accomplish anything in my personal life. I can't be a good citizen. I can't be a good husband. I can't be a good dad. I can't be a good employee. What kind of God is that? He's not a very powerful God then, right? And so he told Aeneas, get up and make your bed, right? And so this idea even comes out more in the New Testament uh, when it talks about qualifications for overseers in the church. Outright, Paul says this. He says, listen, if this guy doesn't have his house in order, he's not gonna be an overseer in the church. So that's the idea we're talking about. Make your bed, love your wife, love your husband. Don't exasperate your kids, Christians shouldn't be defined by personal lives that are full of chaos and full of inconsistency because that's not who our God is and that's not what our God does. Verse 35 says, so all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Lydda's a city, Sharon's a region. This one interaction with the paralytic led to a huge response throughout this district. Tons of people were being converted, turning to the Lord. And this result can speak to us in a couple of different ways. First, it encourages us to go out and minister. As the story goes, right, if we're tracking this story, if Peter had just stayed home, Aeneas doesn't get healed and these people don't turn to the Lord. That doesn't mean that God wouldn't have raised someone else up or couldn't have accomplished this another way. But as we're reading this story and as we're using Peter as an example, the Bible says these things are given to us as an example. If Peter stays home as a slacktivist and says, yeah, I'm for people you know, hearing about Jesus, but he just stays home, okay, this guy's not healed, nobody gets saved that day. That's just the deal. And so we wanna be out doing the business. And so Peter had made himself available and he purposefully went about the business of ministry. And therefore, an amazing harvest took place. But the second encouragement from this response in verse 35 is this, trust the Lord to work out the increase of ministry. It's his business, it's not our business. Uh, we see again and again in the book of Acts that it was the Lord who adds to the church, right? The church was increasing in numbers, but it was the Holy Spirit who was, who was in charge of that. The people of God are not in charge of the numbers of people that are added to the church. Peter didn't have a strategy meeting and determine that Lydda was going to be the best place for a revival meeting. He didn't do a bunch of demographic study and said, well, people in Lydda, if they see a miracle, then they will respond in a certain way, so let's go work a miracle there. That didn't happen. And so sometimes when Christians are talking or trying to make a plan or getting into ministry, they'll say something like, what are we gonna do to reach all of Hanford, all of Kings County, all of the Central Valley? That's not necessarily a bad desire. I'm not trying to knock the mentality, uh, but look at what reached the whole region in this verse, in this text. Peter had one conversation with one guy. Nobody would have planned that. Nobody would have thought that's the way to convert a huge number of people, go talk to one guy. 
Nobody would have thought that. And because of the amazing power of the Spirit, countless lives were impacted. So you can't plan that. I can't plan that. We can't schedule that. We can't cajole the Holy Spirit to do our bidding because we think this will be the best thing to get lots of people saved. What we can do is be available and show up and say, I'm here to minister. Lord, here I am, send me. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work in your vineyard. I'm ready to go out in all all the world. What you do with that, Lord, is your business. And so that's the kind of servants we want to be. Verse 36 says, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. This coastal city west of Lydda was home to a remarkable Christian lady named Tabitha. No, she wasn't an apostle or an evangelist or a church planner. She wasn't even an Instagram influencer. She wasn't any of those things. But in a moment, we'll see that she made a really big difference in the lives of a lot of people. Her ministry was different than that of Stephen's. She didn't debate. It was different than that of Barnabas. She didn't sell property for the church. It was different than Peter. She wasn't in charge of any congregation. Her gifts were in compassion and generosity and service. And her acts of tangible kindness and agape love were absolutely essential. They were very different than what Paul was doing at the time, and that's fine. It was still the same Holy Spirit working in and through her. This is important. It's not that there's one thing the Holy Spirit wants to do or God wants to do and everything else is second class. We have to always preach the gospel, right? But not every single person is going to be gifted as an evangelist. That's just, that's just what the Bible says, that we're all given various gifts and different opportunities and different skills and abilities, different groups of people that the Lord connects us with so that he can do all sorts of different work as a body. This illustrates why we need to resist the urge to get on that bandwagon mentality that sometimes the Christian community gets into. Every Christian needs to be doing X, this program, uh, you know, this idea. This happens sometimes in a general Christian culture level. It sometimes happens on a local level. Every, every church, every Christian needs to do this ministry or this program or this book or whatever. If you listen to or read topical ministry stuff enough, you're going to eventually hear, for example, every Christian needs to get involved in the political process. It's an election week, so we can talk about this, right? Eventually, someone is going to say to you, every Christian needs to be involved in the political process at some level and in some growing level. And you know, it's just not true. It just isn't true. You know what every Christian needs to do is be led by the Holy Spirit and do what God asks them to do. Now, God is going to ask lots of Christians to get involved in the political process, and he's going to ask some Christians not to get involved in the political process, just like we see in the book of Acts. You know, this is what we see in the Bible. God lifts up Peter's, he lifts up Paul's, he lifts up Stephen's, he lifts up Barnabas's, he lifts up Tabitha's. What every Christian needs to do is be led by God as they walk in the good works that they have set before them to do. When we get into the mentality that every Christian needs to do this thing, which I happen to want to do, that's assuming that God doesn't know better, that God doesn't really know how to operate his body. The Holy Spirit's not really going to lead. In fact, we need to use our human reasoning to lead because after all, politics is the most important thing or this program is the most important thing or this demographic is the most important thing. God certainly doesn't know better than us. That's just the wrong mentality. 
Tabitha wasn't traveling city to city like Peter was, but she was busy all the time in ministry and it was meaningful and it was needful and it made a difference. Her ministry was so important, it's been recorded for thousands of years for you and me to study and be inspired by. What an encouragement her example is that God can use any one of us here and not just to speak in front of large crowds like Peter or to talk to Caesar Nero like Paul, but he can use our sewing needles if we surrender them to him. Whether our work is in a kitchen or in a legislative hall, God is big enough to use all those various means to do what he wants to do, and he wants to work in all of those various means, not just one avenue or two. Verse 37, in those days she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Compared to Aeneas, Tabitha's suffering was much shorter, but much more severe. And the Lord was mindful of both of them. If you're suffering tonight, God knows and he cares and he wants to minister to you in that suffering. It may end in healing, it may not end in healing, but the Lord loves you and wants you to know that he is with you and he is mindful of your life. After Tabitha died, they did what was normal in their culture. This was preparing her for burial. Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who begged him, don't delay in coming with us. It's possible that these two guys left for Lydda before Tabitha had died. Either way, they felt compelled to go and reach out to Peter, I'm guessing with the hope that God would do the impossible, either heal her or bring her back from the dead. Now, when they arrived... We don't blame them, but they heap a lot of pressure on Peter. It says they beg him. Uh, they say, don't hesitate. Uh, uh, don't wait. You have to come right now, right now, right now. Now, I'm sure they meant well. They were desperate after all. But we want to be sure that it's God who leads us, not pressure around us leading us to do things, right? When we allow human pressure to cause us to do things, we end up doing things that we're not gifted to do, not called to do, not supposed to do. That can happen. Instead, we want the Lord to lead us. Because listen, there's always something urgent that needs doing, right? In every life, in every community, in every era, there's always something absolutely urgent, something that's like an emergency that needs to be dealt with on a spiritual level right now. Even here in just little old Hanford, there is more urgent spiritual work that needs doing than any of us has the time or capacity to do. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the answer isn't I do whatever I'm pressured to do. The answer is I do what the Lord, the master tells me to do and leads me to do and, and has prepared me to do. Sometimes even well-meaning fellow Christians come and heap pressure on us to be a part of something or to meet some need, and we want to be ready to respond. We want to be flexible. We want to be willing to sacrifice and do what needs doing, but we have to respond where the Lord leads us. Think about it this way. Back in World War II, very important, obviously, if every soldier, sailor, and Marine in the United States military had shown up to Normandy Beach, would that have been a good thing? Every single one? Now, obviously, Normandy was essential. I mean, we had to win that. It was a turning point. It was essential. It was, it, all of the words that you want to use, we, we had to have it. It was the most urgent thing. But if we pause here and say, should every single member of the military have been there? Of course not, because why? Well, there was a Pacific theater. There are things going on here and there and everywhere, right? We needed 
other people in other places doing other things because lots was going on at the time. Or think about it this way, less extreme example. Some of you like to run for some reason. It's weird. (laughs) I hope you'll be set free from that someday. Some of you, has anybody here done a marathon or a half marathon or anything like that? Okay, some of you marathoners there. God bless you, I guess. But when you run a marathon, right, the race organizers set up hydration stations usually about every two miles or so. So there's usually between eight and 12 stops on an average marathon run so that the runners can get hydrated and not die doing this terrible thing. (laughs) What if all of the volunteers and all of the resources were put at the first station? Mile two, what's going to happen at mile 22? You're going to have a real problem. You're going to have a bunch of dead people who thought, why did I go running, right? You have to spread that out. You have to have a lot of people in different spots accomplishing this help. Otherwise, you're going to have a real problem. And so when, be patient. When, even when people, well-meaning people are piling pressure on you, be patient and say, okay, Lord, this seems urgent. I want to serve you. I don't want to say no, but you tell me, Lord, if I'm supposed to go or not. And so figure out what the Lord wants you to do. But remember, with that said, never in the book of Acts do we see the Holy Spirit coming to some Christian and saying, I've got nothing for you to do. Just hang out. You, oh, there's nothing for you to do. You get to just sit around all the time. Let everybody else do all the work. That never happens. There are times when the the Lord says, okay, you are going to go to Macedonia. These other people are going to go over here. You, Philip, are going to go to Azotus, and these other people are going to go over here. He never comes to Barnabas and says, Barnabas, you get to do nothing for the rest of your time. That doesn't happen. But the Lord does direct us. We want to be careful not to become slacktivist Christians. As the story shakes out, it's clear the Holy Spirit did want Peter in Joppa, so he's given the all clear to go. And while uh, he's been doing what ministry he could, he's now suddenly in the midst of one of those great spontaneous divine appointments and Peter is flexible enough to be used. Verse 39 says, so Peter got up and with them, went with them, hold there. He got up, same term that was used of the paralytic. The Lord's desire is to continually lift us up and renew us and invigorate us for service, not just once, but all the time. He continually invites us to act according to his will and in his power. So even if you've been a believer for many decades, stay awake, keep following, be about the business of Christianity, get on up. Verse 39 continues, when he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs and all the widows approached him weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter had made no promises. He didn't claim he'd heal her or raise her from the dead, but he said, listen, I'll go with you and we'll be together. He responded to this need, even though it doesn't seem like he knew just exactly what his part was going to be to play in the situation. He's a great example for us of faith and flexibility in this passage. Verse 40, and Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down and prayed, turning toward the body and said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter and sat up. Seems like Peter wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen at first. You know, elsewhere in the book, when he has worked a miracle, Uh, he's really quick to move, right? We just saw it a few verses ago. Think of the two paralytics he's healed. Uh, The one at the temple gate called Beautiful and then earlier here in our text. He just walks up and must have immediate assurance from the Lord. He says, get up. And like, there's no waiting. There's no lag time. He's just, he goes for it. But here, seems like he's not quite as clear what's gonna happen. He sends the people out, says, I gotta pray for a little bit. Spend some time in prayer 
Now we notice that he mimics what he saw his Lord do in a very similar situation in the Gospels. Not that the Lord was unsure, of course not, but since Peter wasn't immediately aware of God's plan to bring Tabitha back from the dead, he didn't just walk in and say, get up. He clearly, he's like, I need a minute. We gotta figure this out. So in that situation, he proceeded as Jesus proceeded. And that's always a good plan for us. We talk about sermons in the Bible that we wish were recorded, like Philip's sermon to the Ethiopian eunuch or Jesus' sermon on the road to Emmaus. I wish this prayer was recorded. Uh, I've never been asked to raise anybody from the dead. I hope it never happens. And this would be a remarkable prayer to have in a prayer book. But at some point, the Lord revealed to Peter what was going to happen, and Peter responded in faith, and a miracle was done. Once again, Luke uses that term, get up, come alive again, be restored. And Tabitha does. I wonder if she was briefed in heaven before this happened. I, I imagine she must have been. They must have pulled her aside and said, hey, there's good news and bad news. <laughs> You're going back down to first century Judea. Uh, the good news is we'll see you again real soon. But her example reminds us of how real and how simple the resurrection is for us because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died and rose again, we will leave death behind. Those believing loved ones that you have lost, you will see again because they will leave death behind. You will leave death behind. And if you're in Christ, you're gonna be reunited in perfect strength and everlasting life with them. On a devotional level, if you're a Christian who feels spiritually dead or spiritually asleep, be like Tabitha. The Lord says to you by the power of his word tonight, wake up, get up, leave that death behind. God gives you the power to do it. And so respond as she did. Believe that it is Jesus Christ who heals you and be renewed in your life with him. Verse 41 says, he gave her his hand and helped her stand up, hold there. Stand up, there's that term yet again. Here we see Peter assisting this sister. We wanna be helpers. This is a great failing of that, that uh, quintessential, the street pe preacher with a sandwich sign that just says, turn or burn. That style of ministry is not the New Testament style of ministry. You're not helping people stand up. God sends his church to help one another stand. 1 Thessalonians, help the weak. Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Romans 15, help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. And so we wanna behave like Peter does here, preaching the truth of God's word to people and then helping them stand in it. Verse 41 continues, then he called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. What a great moment this would have been. Peter not only restores her to life, he restores her to ministry. Hey, here are your widows, Tabitha. I'm glad you had a rest time in heaven because these people need more clothes made. You know, but he restores her back to ministry. He says, hey, here are the widows that love you so much and you love them and now you're back together again. The scene reminds us that God puts us in a particular community of believers and he knits our lives together. Be a living part of your local church. Present yourself for service to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters. Verse 42, this became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord and Peter stayed on many days in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Notice the choice of words. When the paralytic was healed, all believed and turned to the Lord, not just in one city, but a whole region. Now a woman dies and is brought back from the grave and many believe, not everybody, not all the people who saw her and knew her and understood what had happened. It's more proof that you cannot predict or, or schedule the spiritual response to ministry. You just can't. We've got to be led. 
If we try to plan and strategize everything, we're just going to get it wrong. But the Lord does everything right. And what he does is lift us up, renew us, strengthen us, and then sets us on a course of action that we're to stand up and walk in. Acts shows us that it's not just God's plan for an apostle or two, but for all of us. Along the way, we are able to minister to people, receive ministry, strengthen one another, make a difference in the world using the gifts and opportunities the Lord has given to us. Various people in various activities, but one grand effort overseen and directed by the God who loves to encourage, loves to build up, and loves to add to his church. Amen?